Como estas usted? Or status. So glad you're at church, Dwight. Glad you brought Wendy. That's nice of you. Um, good to have all of you here. Uh, <clears throat> I thought you were going to be camping, and so we chose hard passages. Surprised you made it. And so uh, we're going to start a three-part semi-series that is actually inside the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 13, about end times prophecy, because the text brought us this. And so because it's in the Bible, uh, we preach it and we teach it here. And so we're going to have a few weeks um, talking about end times, or what's called eschatology. It's a really long word, just talking about the study of the end times. And for us, uh, there's kind of ditches that come with this. And my hope is to orient us to look properly um, towards Jesus even if every single detail of the text that we're going to address in chapter 13, we just can't, um, we can't navigate it. And so that's a bit challenging as a Bible teacher. I think furthermore, um, this week when we live in a world um, where someone is going to walk in um, to um, little bitty kids at school and shoot those kids, we can be disoriented. I think in a time where we're now, I, I don't know what disease we're on, but we're kind of going disease after disease, and then we're going, okay, what's the next war that's a result of the last war into the next world? I'm just saying that we live in a world that if we pay any amount of attention to can be disorienting. I can go even further back into our home here. From the things that we face as challenges as a church, of things that the elders have to navigate, of getting better as a group of leadership and the attacks that we have to deal with. Listen, it can be disorienting. And if at the end of the day, whatever we're facing, we don't turn ourselves back and point our lives wholeheartedly in the direction of Jesus, we will find ourselves, even if we're successful, hitting the wrong goal, moving in the wrong direction. And for some of these things that are going to face us as challenges, whether as individuals, a country, or as a church, we should not be surprised by them. If our church was preaching the false gospel, had 15 of us here, we're reaching nobody, we would likely not have the same type of problems and attacks that our church currently has. So in some ways, thank God for the kind of problems that we do have. Now, we just can't sit around and complain because our church is not a utopia. What we have to do instead is rise up and meet the challenges that are here in our generation and in our time. All right? And so we can't look at the next war or the next disease and cause us to take our eyes off of Jesus. That's my argument. One thing that um, kind of occurred to me about what orientations are, if you started a new job, they try to orient you, which is basically all the other employees telling you, do not take this job. Or if you went to university and you had an orientation day, you showed up and they basically, they didn't tell you every class you're taking or every detail of how it's all going to work out. They just basically said college is going to look like this. And they kind of pointed you in that direction. I think this is key because I took my kids to play golf the other day because uh, I'm a glutton for punishment. We didn't play golf. We went to the driving range. It's not the same thing. And then we decided that that was so hard that we just were sticking to putt-putt. And when you, I took him to play golf, I discussed all kinds of things, like how you grip the club and, you know, how to swing and, 
like why the clubs are different. I'm just kind of going over what a birdie is and a bogey. And we just dumped out balls. And sure enough, this is what's amazing. Two seconds in, they're just trying to happy Gilmore that thing. All right? Some of you don't know what that means. And that's fine. They're running and just stabbing at it. Or they're taking a baseball swing. And so there's lots of things that in the first golf lesson you can't fix all of that stuff. But where you start when you're coaching someone is the feet. The part of the body that is connected to the earth. Same thing when you teach people how to shoot a basketball. You start with the feet. And so, because here's the thing. My kids were coming up to the golf ball, pointing over here, trying to hit it that way. So I had to put their feet in alignment, and I took a golf club. And I set their feet, and I put the club there, and pointed the club at the hole that is their goal. And they just didn't realize that their feet were so wrong. That if we started aiming our feet at the wrong place, even if everything else looks pretty, we're in trouble. And I think that's what my, my, my heart is and my goal is today is to just line us up in such a way that we know Jesus is ahead of us down there somewhere. Even if some of the trees of history are blocking our view of the whole. Okay? And we're just going to trust to move in his direction, and that will be better than going after any other goal with our lives. All right, so that's where we're, that's where we're aim at. And so I've got a super long introduction, a lot of text. Uh, pray for me. Let's just uh, go to the Lord in prayer, and then uh, we're going to talk about this text. Dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. Praise is befitting of you because you not only started all of creation... But you're the author and perfecter that's going to bring it to a glorious end. None is so wise or all-knowing or sovereign as you who could take the evil of human history and work it to good. You alone get the glory. And so, God, as we look down through the future at things that our humanity, we're just clouded. We don't know everything and how it's going to work out. God, would you use your word for the purposes you intentioned it for to cause us to trust you in the here and now and trust you with whatever is to come. God, come and be the pastor and the teacher. God, this is not the elders church, the deacons church. This church belongs to none of us. This church is your church. And so come and do what you want to do, Holy Spirit. We beg for that. Make the gospel clear. Give us hope and a future. We pray in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. Here comes the lead in, and uh, you're going to have to hold with me as a long intro. Okay? First thing is, all of the passages that I did not want to do in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 13, is what uh, I dreaded the most. Many theologians will say this is the most debated and controversial chapter of all of the Gospel of Mark. All right? And so we've, we've got to figure out how are we going to navigate through this. And I've talked to lots of different pastors and theologians who are faithful Bible teachers who land with a lot of I don't knows. All right? And so I know that that could be disorienting for us. But I think that there are gettable things here. That, it, that God wants us to take away, and some other things that may be mysterious that you're going to leave in the heart of God and just going to have to trust that if 
you need to know it, when you need to know it, he will reveal it. Amen? Some of us, come on my type A people, you want to know every detail. That's how I teach the Bible. I come here and pay attention to details. But there has to be, and just to, I, my limitations as a Bible teacher is that I do not know the answers to everything that's in Mark chapter 13. Especially next week, I'm going to give you some various views and kind of be like, yeah, maybe. But what I feel incredibly solid on is the kind of person Jesus wants you to be in the meantime as you walk in this direction towards the end game. You with me so far? So here's how I want to kind of take a step back and give you an idea of how I think through the Bible. There is a study in theology called hermeneutics, which is basically the study of how do you do biblical interpretation? How do you address a passage? My hermeneutic, when I come to the text, is that I interpret the obscure things with what is clear. What is clear throughout the Bible is the gospel, who God is, what man is responsible for, and what we're supposed to be doing. So I take the clear things to interpret the obscure things. I don't take the obscure thing about Nephilim in the Old Testament and then try to interpret from that everything else that is blatantly clear in the text. Does that make sense? What's encouraging for us is that I believe, as Alistair Begg says all the time, that the main things are the clear things and the clear things are the main things. Let that soak in for a minute. That the clear things are the main things and the main things are the clear things. So, uh, I would even go further. If you've read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 or you've attended a wedding... One of the things that it says is that we see through a mirror dimly. Like there's some things, I I just want to deflate you. I know you're Americans and you can do anything. I got to deflate you a little bit. You don't know everything. God doesn't intend for you to know everything. Some of it, you're going to have to look dimly through a mirror and say, all right, I'm good as long as God knows I'm good, even if I don't. The other thing that Corinthians gives me great encouragement about is that it literally says, if I have all knowledge, by the way, in French, we use the word science. Science is just the word for knowledge. If I have all knowledge, but have not love, if I can interpret all prophecy and have not love, then it's it's like a complete and utter waste. So here's the thing about the clear thing, is if at the end of the day, We're playing with prophecy, or we're playing with the Bible, and it doesn't lead us to do the great commandment of loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors ourselves. We've missed the purpose of prophecy. Are you with me so far? So when it comes to these texts, the main things are the clear things, clear things, the main things. And I also, you know, because I had a football coach, forgive me, but I kind of approach most things with the hermeneutic called KISS. Keep it simple, stupid. And that, as a philosophy, has helped me through some things in life more than others. All right. Here's the other aspect of think of what we've kind of got to navigate. And this is, this is just where I'm coming from. Is that, is there not a place where Christians have embarrassed themselves more than this? Where we make goofy, soft, unbiblical predictions about the end times... That in some ways come in clear contradiction to Jesus saying no man knows the day or the hour. 
But you go on TBM, you can go on YouTube right now, and you can find people who are currently predicting when the end is. Amen or oh me. Some of you lived through the 80s. And listen, it's not just the guy with a comb over and a calculator who missed in the 80s. Billy Graham took a stab at it. There's faithful, if, if you love the Calvary Chapel, tons of faithful biblical preachers just gave it a go. Right? What God, this is where you just got to love church. What God says, you're not going to get it. You're not going to take, we're like, well, I'll, well, I'll take a stab at it. You know? He doesn't know me. Right? Like, is there not a place where we've, I mean, tell me, where have we embarrassed ourselves more than when we've tried to predict the end? Where, do you realize, even in this passage that was already read, Jesus gives us warnings about the end that say that these things are not the end. And people will draw charts and maps like a conspiracy theorist using the warnings that Jesus said are not the end to say that they can use those to predict the end. We are awesome. And so I just, there's a lot of baggage here. And, and I think what is maybe worse than that is that we get caught up in the conspiracy theories of end times prophecy and we don't take away the actual clear thing that Jesus wants us to take away from the passage. So this is where I'm going to push right here. So I want you to listen. I heard this and I, I think it's been helpful. What if our view as Christians of the end times was centered on preparing Christ rather than preparing for the Antichrist. Like if our fascination was centered around preparing for Christ rather than the Antichrist. What if we were, we were consumed with the mark of the Lamb and preaching the gospel to the ends of the earth rather than consumed with the mark of the beast? And it's a vaccine or it's a computer chip or it's probably is both. You know, like, like I, you know, like we, we're just not, what if we thought about more spreading the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth and the redemption of the earth more than we thought about just trying to escape? Beam me up because I don't want to be here. What God thought you should be here and that you, there's specific biblical things you should be doing. While you just happen to be here. What if it. What if our view of eschatology. What if our view of end times centered instead of on fear. But it's centered on hope. What if we preached a whole lot of hope. I don't know if you've read ahead in Peter's epistles. Like first and second Peter. You know how much hope is in that. As much as it deals with end time stuff, you know how much hope is there? In a world where fear in our culture is so tangible, you can feel it dripping around you in people, where everybody's scared to death, what would it be like to be a community of people that are just stoked by hope? I just think that there's what's worse 
than us taking a stab at it and looking like idiots because we're contradicting the Lord that we call master. What's maybe worse than that is that we actually aren't doing and getting the things that God gave us these passages for to begin with. Do you realize that the end times are not all at once? But it's the end times, we never talk about the first times, but I'm not getting into that. The end times started at the resurrection of Jesus that are going to go until the second coming. And that people so misunderstood it in Thessalonica that when Paul wrote his epistle to the Thessalonians, he told them to go back to work because they were quitting their jobs because they misunderstood it so bad. He said, no, go back to work. Here's even me. I I love church history. You guys that are members here, you kind of understand that. Do you know the Apostles' Creed is the earliest creed of Christendom, of the church worldwide, just having an agreement about what is the essential doctrines of Christianity even a lot of our, our um, beliefs and constitution bylaws reflects still the same understandings of a lot of the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed in the early church, you can even argue this for 17, 1800 years of the church, up until basically like the 1800s when there became a fascination with dispensationalism and other eschatological views. Up until that period of history, the, the church's stance on the end times is Jesus is coming. Not like Jesus is coming, look busy. It was like Jesus is, Jesus is coming to make all things right. He's going to judge what I love, the quick and the dead. It sounds like a great movie title. He's going to judge the living and the dead. Like Jesus is coming, that's it. That was the theological stance of worldwide Christianity about the second coming. But now we got raptures and tribulations and there's books by Tim LaHaye and then there's some guy out of... Eastern Europe that's going to become the Antichrist and you've got to rebuild the temple. There's all of this additional, um, can I say almost Hollywoodish, unbiblical kind of constructions that now when I come to a passage like this that we have to deal with. And, and here is uh, maybe your reaction to everything I'm saying about how complicated this is. Your reaction may be what most of my reaction has been in theology. You just ignore it. Like honestly, Many of you don't have any perspective on like preterism or post-mill or pre-mill or any of these things because for you, it just seems like a big hot mess and you would say, like I've said before, I'm just a pan-millennialist. But that means it's all going to pan out. I'm just here, I'm here for the party, all right? And here's the reason why I think that's such a bad perspective is because Jesus gave us Mark chapter 13. And uh, if you go to the slide uh, that's up, Deuteronomy 29.29 is a verse that says that we cannot just throw away the hard parts of the Bible. We can't just edit out the parts that are difficult for us. In Deuteronomy 29.29, this is a a view of how to address the Bible. Deuteronomy 29.29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But to the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Not just know them, church. Obey them. So here's the thing. There are some things that are in the secret counsel of the heart and mind of God and none of us are going to know those things. But the things that are in Scripture, like Mark chapter 13, are given to us, and I love how this is put, into our children forever. Like God gave it. So here's the thing, if we don't do Mark 13, we're missing something. We're missing something God intends for us to have. 
here's how I think about it philosophically. You can't reform back to something without an origin story. And you can't progress in the right direction without an eschatology. A lot of the political conflict that you get into with your family members has to do with you disagreeing where we come from and you disagreeing where all of human history is heading. You can't reform without an origin story and you can't have real progress unless you know what the end is. And so there is given to us this passage because God created all things and he had intentions for it to go somewhere. So we can't check out. As convenient as it would be to just pick up Mark 14 like none of you are paying attention anyways. Now, that gets us to the text. Let's look at it. Chapter 13, verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, pause, we just got finished a couple weeks ago uh, talking about he was in the treasury looking at the widow's might. If you missed that sermon, it should be online. He has left a series of the triumphal entry where he was constantly in controversy and questions. If we think there's a version of our Christian life that is faithful, that will remove all questions or all controversy, we have a version of the Christian life that will not look like Jesus. So he ends this section, and now we are in what is called the long- it's not called that, it is the longest teaching section in all of the Gospel of Mark. We discussed this early when we started the book, that Peter's a fisherman, he's blue collar. Most of the book is kind of like your FCA uh, synoptic gospel. It's quick, it's action-oriented, it's the actions of Jesus. So unlike John or Matthew or Luke, we don't have long teaching sections. Instead, we have Jesus on the move. For instance, there's connective words like but and conjunction, junction, what's your function? And, then, when, that are used over 1,300 times in the Gospel of Mark. There's connective tissue between the stories and what he's doing. But you don't have long Sermon on the Mount teachings. Are you with me so far? But now we come in Mark 13 and we're 2-1. This is one of three major discourses that Jesus does. One of them being the Sermon on the Mount. The second one is this one, what is called the Olivet Discourse. Because he's on the Mount of Olives looking at the temple when it's taking place. And the third will be the Upper Room Discourse, which we will get to at the end of June. It's coming as well. Which is where we talk about communion. Okay? So these are one of three. Three different aspects of Jesus are involved in Mark 13. Jesus is prophet, Jesus is priest, and Jesus is king. What is also present in Mark chapter 13 is the past, the present, and the future. And so contextually, he came to the temple, and he's coming out of the story of controversy, and now he's coming into a larger teaching time. This purpose in Mark 13, which is paralleled in Matthew 24, Luke 21, and then here, is to exhort you and to admonish you to live a certain way because God created everything and he's got creation going in a direction called redemption. There's two things that are going to be viewed in Mark 13 that people are going to land differently on. But almost everybody believes that these things are in view. The first thing that you have to look at is the destruction of the temple. 
which if you've been here we've, since we've done the triumphal entry, the cursing of the fig tree, we've been discussing the destruction of the chim- temple coming. So one view, almost everybody agrees the destruction of the temple is in view here because Jesus is going to say not one of these stones left upon another. The second object in view in Mark 13 is the end times. Now some people believe Mark 13 only discusses the destruction of the temple in 70 AD by the Roman general Titus. Some people believe that it doesn't really have to do with that at all. They're only discussing like when the Antichrist and Jesus returning and the rapture and all that stuff. A lot of people believe in some form of a blended of the two. That there's a near prophetic activity happening, the destruction of the temple, and a far activity happening, the end times. So what we need, theologians, is bifocals. Amen? Because at some point you could read. And then all of a sudden you started reading out here. Alright? Because you're trying to get it at the right distance so that you can see what you can see. What we need is bifocals because I believe God is weaving these two near and far events together. And we'll get more into that next week. What makes it difficult is how much are they interconnected? How much are they separate? And are they working in concert or are they uber distinguished? Does that make sense? Now, he came out of the temple. One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones. And if you've got the PowerPoint, throw it up there. What wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see... These great buildings, there will not be left here one stone upon the other that will not be thrown down. I don't know, I, I don't know if you're from a city or uh, from the country, just hold it this side. I don't know if you're, where you're from, but I grew up in a rural area in southern Oklahoma between Dallas and Oklahoma City. And I remember going, like, as a young man, into the city and seeing skyscrapers for the first time. Does anybody remember what it was like to go to a big city? Like, I thought Oklahoma City was a big city. You you went there and you felt small. You're like, oh my gosh, like, your definition of what rich people are is different. Your definition of, like, construction and all of these things. These country boys are coming and it's it's awe-inspiring to see this temple. Jesus is giving that it's... Verse 3, and he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately. So there's going to be a discourse that happens on the Mount of Olives. This is the Mount of Olives today. Uh, the church, my, one of my favorite churches in all of the world is Dominus Levitus. That's, that church is built really around the uh, Mount of Olives where he um, suffered great drops of blood and prayed and those sorts of things. D- don't pay attention to the gold dome one. That's a, a dumb church. But... Um, the Mount of Olives, this is what it would have looked like, and he would have been on the valley below, and then he's up on the other side, and they're looking back. So this is a picture taken from basically like the temple, looking out to the Mount of Olives, where he would have said, go to the next one. Um, So if you flip and you go back to the Mount of Olives, this is from an observation deck similar to what he would have been staring from this direction back to the Temple Mount. Now, I don't have time to get into all the history, but the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, which we'll talk about in a bit. And when it was destroyed, later, after Muslims invaded and killed everybody or converted them at the edge of a sword, 
they took over the Temple Mount and they built what is considered the third most holy site for Muslims there called the Dome of the Rock. So imagine the first most holy site for Jewish people being the Temple and some other religion building another building on top of it. The Jews do not love this, as you might imagine. And the Wailing Wall, which you may be familiar with, is the closest base of a wall that a Jew can get to the Temple Mount. Jews are not allowed on the Temple Mount. Now, there is no temple today. It was destroyed. Matter of fact, there's not even uh, the base of it. Because a lot of even the foundation stones were ripped, as Jesus is going to say, not one stone upon another. Even controversy about where to put Herod's temple, because he expanded Solomon's temple so much, that there's, there's, I mean, it's down to the bedrock almost. And stuff has been constructed over it since. But this is the direction, looking back, and that gold dome is the Dome of the Rock. And um, Yeah, you can hear calls to prayer to Islam there. Go to the next slide. So, this is a reconstruction or a model of what Herod's, or what's called the Second Temple. This is not Solomon's Temple. Solomon's Temple was destroyed. This is the rebuilt Second Temple, and what it would look like. It was massive. If you're at the base of the Kidron Valley, looking up, the temple would have went 200 feet above you. If you're familiar with the Bible, when Jesus was tempted, Satan took him where? The pinnacle of the temple. Right? One of the early disciples in church history was martyred by taking, being taken to the pinnacle of the temple and thrown off and killed. Okay? This, this was the high point of the whole city. Like, do you realize that the Temple Mount complex that Herod expanded, he expanded it 400 yards by 500 yards from the original of Solomon's. They had to flatten the top of a mountain and build a retaining wall to hold the expanded temple. The Temple Mount complex was one-sixth of the total city of Jerusalem. 36 acres on top of a mountain. So whenever you think about that retaining wall that you've got to fix at your property, 200 feet above holding massive, massive stones. The stones, uh, they, ex- they, they basically cut them and worked them off-site. They didn't want any chisels or hammers to be heard on the Temple Mount, so they would do the excavation of the stonework and then move them from miles away at a great distance. Each stone was about the size of a railroad car. It's massive. You get like four people wing to wing here, tip to tip, and it's, they're still as big as these stones are. They're massive foundation stones that they put into place. The temple took about 80 years. And what's interesting is that even, some scholars say that um, even by the time that Jesus is given this prediction, the temple is not done. Like it's going to get just about done, 70 AD, and God's going to elbow drop it. It's almost like God waited for them to finish it so he could raise it to the ground. Do you realize the bombshell statement that this is? They had never seen a structure like this. No concept of like even how to... These, these disciples wouldn't even know how to build this thing. The Babylonian Talmud said of it being an archaeological wonder that if a man had not seen Herod's temple, he had never seen a great building. It was inlaid at the top with gold such that as the sun rose, it was blinding to you. Josephus said the early uh, Jewish historian, not a Christian, but talked about the temple, said that it had everything to amuse and cause wonder for the eye and the soul. 
I mean, you're, you're talking about a wonder of the world. It took 80,000 workers. Hey, have you ever tried to plant a garden up here in Colorado? I went out to Crossbar X and worked for like 10 minutes. Was it 10 minutes? Um, and they were like, hey, we're going to build a trench for flowers through here. We just take these pickaxes. Pickaxes? Why don't shovels work? Dink, right? They're the same exact high desert rock. Do a pick, go home today and do a pickaxe for 10 minutes. And then go read about slaves and Irish people building the railroad in America, and you will have a different perspective on work. You will go to work on Tuesday, not Monday. You'll go to work on Tuesday thankful for your job after 10 minutes of pickaxing in the middle of Colorado. What kind of work would it take to build? They've never seen something more awe-inspiring and more beautiful. By the way, church, God calls you His temple. He calls you His temple. Most beautiful thing that any of them had ever said. And God says, like, that's like how you are to me. That's how I dwell in you. And, and the bombshell here, is it not that their whole faith revolved around the temple. That's where the Holy Spirit was. Their whole sacrificial system, their prayer life. Listen, they synced their Google calendar up to the festivals that went around this place. Here's another way of saying it. Jesus, I built my whole life around that temple. If it's gone, what do I orient my faith around? Do you get where this is going? Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it back up. An eternal temple in the body of Jesus. I mean, is there not a more beautiful porticos and cloistered courts and colonnades? Is there not? And here's what Jesus says, it's all coming down. It's going to be completely destroyed. Uh, go to the next slide. I'll give you, give you a sense of this. So here is Herod's Temple Mount. Unless you have binoculars, I don't expect you to read this. Uh, Go to the next one. So here's a comparison. This green box in the bottom right is uh, an American football field. The orange box is Solomon's Temple. And then the court of the tabernacle there. Uh, Ezekiel's Temple. And then Herod's Temple. And so there's kind of like... This is a bit of a size comparison. Go to the next one, because I think it gives us a sense of how they kind of are all together. So this is how this was expanded just massively, right? Uh, There's the women's court that we've talked about. Um, We're talking about the men's court, the court of the Gentiles, all of that stuff. Now, think about this structure. Now, go to the next one. It's a concept of the size of a man to some of the base stones. I don't care how much you crossfit. You're not that dude, right? You and about a hundred of your friends, all of their oxen. Okay? Go to the next one. This is an artist rendering of the destruction of Jerusalem, of how it burned. Um, there is an historical account. I found this unbelievable fascinating. It's not in the Bible, so we don't have to believe it, but at least one... Um, historian talks about this and there's a good credibility to it 
there was no reason for Rome to take every stone off of the next. They didn't know anything about Jesus' prophecy. They didn't know anything about that. Most of the time, Rome was pretty tolerant. You could continue to worship your gods as long as you worship Caesar and our gods as well. We just kind of, it was polytheism, so they blended in. The problem that Christians had is that we would not worship their gods. There was one God, and we're not worshiping yours. But generally, they didn't destroy temples. They would just repurpose them, okay? Kind of like churches that go under now are really good restaurants and bars. So what, what, he, what happened, though, according to one account, is that in the desert, super hot, they set the city on fire. The fire catches to the temple, and it becomes so hot that it melts the gold on top of the temple, becomes liquefied, and the liquefied gold goes through the stones of the temple and goes down into the base of the temple mount. A good Roman soldier, what did they do? They waited until the fires died, and they literally took every stone up off the other. They threw the stones off of the temple looking for the gold that melted in between them. Thus, without ever knowing, becoming the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy that there won't be one stone upon another. Go to the next slide. It's another artist's rendering of the massacre that happened there. Some would say even as a fulfillment of Mark 13 had not, a massacre of such devastation had not happened uh, unlike anything in human history. Go to the next slide. These are actually a pile of stones that they believe were some of the original temple stones that when the soldiers threw them off the temple from the top, they fell down. They hit Roman roads and created dents and potholes in the Roman roads. There are 2,000-year-old potholes still there from the stones they threw off in 70 AD. And you think your government's taking a long time to fix the dents. Isn't this crazy? So here's, here's maybe a takeaway. Great-looking things. Permanent-looking things. They won't last, but the church will. Beautiful-looking, indestructible titanics won't last, but the church will. Great pomp. Great presentation, but without God, they will not persevere. They won't. This bombshell hits the disciples like one of those stones falling from the Temple Mount. I know this is crazy for you, but do you realize the house you live in right now, that if it's not maintained and redone a hundred years from now, nobody's even going to live in it? Have you seen a house that hadn't had anybody live in it for 20 years? How's that house doing? Beautiful as it was on day one. Not going to make it. So let's get back into the text. Not one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Verse 3. I'm going to read through this a bit. And he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately. Tell us, here's the center of their question. When will these things be And what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? When are they? And kind of tip your hand, give us a heads up on what this is. Notice one thing. I don't got enough time to get into this. 
Do you realize they don't ask the question, why is this happening? There's a little food for thought. No why, just when. Because I'm going to definitely sell my house in Jerusalem before that. When will these be accomplished? Jesus began to say to them, I need you to pay very good attention here. See that no one leads you astray. That is the first statement that is incredibly key and critical for understanding this. What Jesus is about to say is, here are things that could lead you astray, but I'm telling you beforehand so that they don't lead you astray. Here's another way of saying it. I'm going to tell you what the end is not. I'm going to tell you what the end is not. Before we get to whatever the end and the temple and all of that thing, I'm going to tell you what the end in some ways is not. Six, many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Jesus predicted the Jehovah's Witness, the Mormons, the Muslims, and any other cult leader that claims they are the Messiah and the way other than him. Let me tell you how nuts that is. If you're a non-Christian in here and you don't believe the Bible, I want you to zoom in on this for a minute. There's an obscure teacher 2,000 years ago in an off-corner of the galaxy. It would be Tatooine. Off-corner of the empire. And in that place, a teacher with 12 teenage, college-age disciples says, there's going to be tons of people come and claim to be Jesus. A teacher. Random. Let me give it to you another way. It's my house church. Good. Tyler's not in here. Tyler is a house church leader. If Tyler shows up at house church next week and says, house church, I want you to know that 2,000 years from now, there will be thousands of people coming claiming to be Tyler. Don't go to their house church or follow them. I, you know, I think our elders, or I think we can get rid of Tyler, you know? I feel good about this. Do you realize he's coming saying there's going to be people not just claiming to be the Messiah. There's plenty of those. They're going to claim to be Jesus. You know there's a guy in Siberia right now that claims to be Jesus? I love that they always grow their hair out, right? Because Hollywood says he's got long hair. He's like, all right, we're good. If, I don't got the, if you ain't got locks, you are... There's an Asian woman claiming to be Jesus, and she started a cult that's invading. There's a guy in Mexico, claim, Jesus, claiming to be Jesus. Like, there's multiple people right now that have a following. Jesus saw them coming and says, don't let them lead you astray. Doesn't it feel like the, ex- the existence of cults, like the more and more they got itchy ears, they don't listen to sound teaching, they run after cults, Jim Jones, Kool-Aid, spaceships and comets and all this stuff. Doesn't that make you feel like we've got to be close to the end? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Like, that's just Tuesday. They're going to come claiming to be Jesus. You know, the Muslims have a false, unbiblical Jesus. That if you compared him to the biblical Antichrist, the Muslim Jesus is the Antichrist. And the Jesus they have coming, they believe is the true one, looks just like our Antichrist. That's just weird. Could you imagine this statement 2,000 years ago? It's like, there's going to be tons of people. Like, Branch Davidians. He's going to grow his hair out. There's going to be a compound. We've got need tanks. Who's going to follow that guy's a cult? That dude needed glasses. 
Like he had the glasses and they thought David Koresh was Jesus. It's like if he needs glasses, definitely not Jesus. Just maybe that's a lead. Right? He says, they are going to come in my name saying I am heat and they will, look at this, they're going to have success. Because men love darkness rather than light. He's, they're going to lead many astray. Now, we're trying to snatch as many of those people out of the fire as we can. Right, church? That's our job. In La Plata County, tell me if I'm not right, there are more churches, churches, there are more, there are more cults in La Plata County than there are evangelical churches that preach the gospel. Yes or no? That's the place you are called to do ministry. So it's telling these things. They're going to come in my name saying, I'm he, lead many astray. Verse 7. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Anybody? Yeah, but Russia, China's the dragon coming out of the sea. Jesus is like, no, no, no. Don't be alarmed by wars. This must take place, but the end is not yet. I would argue this. Tell me if I'm wrong. Look at this text with me. Someone who would come and point to... clear sign that in 2032, Jesus is returning is contradicting the clearness of this text that says no war, rumor of war, singular cult leader, the end is not yet. That's just the cost for doing ministry in the fallen world you find yourself in. That's Tuesday. Four, verse eight, four, because there's purpose. It must take place. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, there will be earthquakes in various places. So go ahead and tell me how the next tsunami, the next thing, is, makes it clear that Jesus is coming back. And I am so glad that we're actually in this passage because I began to think about it that we're rolling up on 2,000 years since Jesus actually did ministry. Obviously, he was like 30 years old and, you know, born around zero, okay? And so we're getting into the 30s, the roaring 30s. Or maybe that was the 20s. Whatever we're getting into now. And there's going to be a time where people are saying, see, we're 2,000 years exactly since Jesus. This is going to have to be where it is. And Jesus is like nation against nation, kingdom against earthquakes. There will be famines. And I, I think that includes baby formula, apparently. And, and these are the beginning of birth pains. Now, I've never had birth pains. But they say that you can measure them on a clock. Men, or ladies, birth pains are connected to the judgment of God. And somebody can say amen. Um, at the same time, maybe growing in intensity, maybe we do war worse now than we've ever done war. I don't know. Birth pains, men, imagine having the flu. I'm just joking. Um, verse 9, but here's Jesus' response. But be on guard. Like if your response to wars, famine, earthquakes is to put my guard down 
and not have my eyes on Jesus, what the mess are you doing? Right? Be on guard. Jesus is telling you it's going to happen. All this stuff. For they will deliver you over to councils. You're going to get called to the office. Right? Anybody had that walk before? Yeah, you're homeschooled. And for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. By the way, is there a more insulated class of people than rulers in government? Like people who are more out of touch with the common people than, say, like politicians. And what he's going to say is, in order to go before them, it's going to cost you. Because those people, when they reject the gospel, it comes with a level of consequence that is different than your neighbors. But it's all ordained. Listen to this. Because you're going to bear witness before them and you're going to be flogged. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. This is where many theologians and missionaries will say that until we've got about somewhere between 11 and 14,000 unreached people groups left in the world, that is an incrementally small number from where it was 40 years ago. We have 11,000 to 14,000 unreached people groups. A lot of people say that once every people group has a tithe or a representation of Christians and a church among it, then comes the end. And it comes from this verse right here. That until we're done with the Great Commission and preaching the gospel to the whole world and Christianizing everything that we can, there it, the end is not yet. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious. Some of you are anxious just reading this verse. Beforehand, what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. We do not earn our salvation by endurance. We prove our salvation by endurance. Here's what this whole section at the end is discussing. The mission of God will cost the people of God suffering. The mission of God will cost the people of God suffering. And suffering for some people is an excuse to quit. Jesus says suffering should not be a trigger where you think that that's the end simply because you have pain. Suffering, church, in the eyes of Jesus is a useful tool for missions. If every tribe doesn't have a church, keep going until it does. If every tongue doesn't sing hymns, keep going until it does. If every nation does not have the law of God and the truth of God, keep going until it does. It is not the end. I have never heard that said about those things in this passage. 
And while you're going, know that the Holy Spirit is going to take you the whole way. And that whatever you need, as you go there, you're going to have. See, we use suffering as an excuse to quit. Jesus is using it as a signpost to show you're on the right track. The purpose of your in the mission of God is to say to an onlooking and having a painless existence. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold or some painless existence for 80 years without Him. Jesus is better. Suffering is our skin in the game where we participate with what Jesus is doing to redeem the whole world and it's our stake in glory. So let me put it to you a different way. Jesus minus everything is better than everything minus Jesus. That'll preach in a world that's pursuing everything other than Jesus. Jesus minus everything is better than everything minus Jesus. Your suffering is not an excuse to quit. It's actually a signpost that you're on the right track. The end is not yet. Here's something crazy. I'm I'm about to end. Here's something crazy and I want to end here. Every hero of the faith that you've got, I don't care if it's your mama, your daddy, your grandmama, some theologian in church history, some Christian that you just look up to and you look. Of all your crazy heroes of the faith, God didn't choose for them to live in Colorado in 2022. He chose you. He looked throughout all of his roster, could have pulled anybody off the bench, entered them into this time and space. Who's going to do great with disease and pandemic and fear? Is it monkeypox? Is that where we're at now? And monkeypox and gas shortages and fear and fear and fear and fear. And look and said, this would be a great time for you to live and exist and to preach and to do missions. This is your time in church history. God in all of his sovereignty, wars, rumors of war, fear, earthquakes, everything that all people throughout all of church history have faced in order to the stake they've had to pay, the ante up that they've had to get involved with, in order to be faithful to God, God said, this would be a great, I, I got a great idea. I'm going to put you here. This is your slice of church history. Are you being faithful with it? Are we getting flogged today when we leave here? Probably not. But I'll go ahead and tell you that soft persecution in America is already in full swing. People are frustrated that you exist. They're frustrated that we're doing this right now. There is people here in our county that believe we are bigots because our beliefs about sexuality, they believe we are narrow because we believe there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There there are people that believe that we are a hindrance to their expression of freedom. They believe we're a hindrance to their progress. 
And if you are faithful to Jesus, you will be socially outcast in our culture by somebody somewhere. You will at times have to lose jobs. You're going to be called ignorant, dumb, backwards. Soft persecution is already full swing. How are you doing with it? Because here's what soft persecution is. It's death by a hundred thousand cuts. It's not all at once. It's not a beheading. It's death by a thousand cuts. It's jab after jab. Here's church where I want to finish this. You want to be ready for the end? You want to be ready for whatever day that is and whatever hour that is? I love you. And all that's in my heart, I have one admonishment for you. Repent and believe the gospel. You want to be ready for end times and whatever may come? Repent of your sin and believe the gospel and walk with Jesus every step. There's no other way to be ready. I'm going to pray for you. I mean, we're going to go into a time of communion. His Holy Spirit dwells in us. Dear Heavenly Father, how will be thy name? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Usher the kingdom now. Use us, our sweat equity, our blood equity, our resources, our time, whatever we have. Thou, we surrender it all to your Lordship. Thou, would you keep us from being goofy? Everybody said, Amen. We're going to go into a time of communion. It's good. Um, are you blessed? Um, I know there's the parenting thing coming up on the 4th. Uh, I did get a flyer for the youth Bible study tonight, 5.30, 7.30 at Eagle Park. Starts tonight. If you got 6th grade through high schooler, they're going to do Bible study, play games, do different stuff. Um, all of that there. Uh, get on the church email, I think is the big takeaway. Everything else good. Um, now for a benediction. May you, because of the words of Jesus, be on guard and endure to the end. Amen? Amen. Amen. Love you guys. We'll see you next week.